My mouth even opened to shout some sort of greeting, though no words came. Then the water, first slithering, then tumbling, gushed us apart. At half-past four on the afternoon of the 8th of April, 1912, a stranger chose to die in my arms. He was hung upon the railings of one of those grand houses in Manchester Square, arms spread like a scarecrow, With his very first words, he made it plain he wasn't overwhelmed by circumstances. I know who I am, is what he said. In the open window behind him, a maid in a white cap stabbed flowers into a vase. It's as well to know oneself, I replied, and walked on. I heard a shout. Looking back, I saw the unfortunate had shrugged himself out of his coat and was stumbling in my direction. His colorless face had eyebrows arched like a clown and lips that were turning blue. Please, I said, as he pitched forward and clutched me round the waist. We both fell to our knees. The man was drowning. His face was so close that his two eyes merged into one. Lay me down, he whispered, and a tear rolled out of that one terrible eye. I laid him down as best I could. I would have taken off my jacket to serve as a cushion, if he hadn't clung to my hands. His grip was fierce. Then, arching a middle finger and foraging beneath the cuff of my shirt, he feather-dusted my beating pulse. A finger stroke of love, he said quite distinctly, and soon after died. Sometime during the minutes of his dying, he had released his hold on me, and fumbling in his vest pocket, brought forth a small square of cardboard, which he pressed against my heart. After leaving the barber's shop, where the body had been carried by two constables, I found myself in possession of a snapshot of a Japanese woman peeping out from behind an embroidered fan. I had every intention of giving it into the care of a constable, only to spy through the glass front of the shop the figure of the dead man seated in a barber's chair, a white cloth tied about his neck. I suppose he had been placed there until a conveyance arrived, so as not to deter potential customers. His eyes were open, and they were looking at me. I went immediately to Prince's Gate, packed my bag, and closed the door quietly behind me. I paused in the corridor, did what I intended to do, it took but a moment, brushed the square of dust away with my sleeve, and went to the head of the stairs. As fate would have it, Cousin Jack was coming up as I descended. There followed a conversation of sorts, though my heart beat so loud I scarcely heard it. Ah, he said, it's you. The very same, I replied. Are we well? He asked. Pretty well. Excellent, he thundered, and stepped on past. In all the weeks I'd stayed at that house, we had never once dined together. He was nearly thirty years my senior, and I no more than twelve years of age when he had last set eyes on me, in the library of his father's brownstone on Madison Avenue. I wouldn't like to give the impression that I thought badly of Jack. Quite the reverse, it was he who told my aunt it was time she stopped feeding me moonshine in regard to my beginnings. Up until then, I knew little of my parents, beyond they were both headstrong and dead, my father two months before I was born, and my mother, half-sister-in-law to my uncle Morgan, three years after. I wasn't really bothered about the whys and wherefores, but often crazy images came into my head, 
either when I was on the point of dropping off to sleep or on the edge of waking. Images of an old woman's face lying next to me on a soiled pillow. And then I'd come fully awake and scream the house down. Sometimes my cousin Sissy would push up the balcony window and hold me there, telling me to suck in the night air. Those times I stopped breathing altogether, for when I looked down at the gaslit street, it had sunk beneath the sluggish waters of a canal. I didn't find the truth all that upsetting, though Sissy wept for days. I was just thankful I hadn't slithered into the world on the wrong side of the tracks. As for the other grotesque happenings concerning my infant self, which I read about in brittle newspaper cuttings handed me by Jack soon after my twelfth birthday, why they merely confirmed a growing belief that I was destined to be a participant rather than a spectator of singular events. For instance, an hour before Amy Svensson hanged herself due to milk.